Dear Father in heaven, we are incredibly thankful for your many blessings in our lives. We thank you, Father, for your tender mercy, for your patience, for your long-suffering with us. And we thank you, Lord, that you find in us something worthwhile in investing in. And Lord, we pray that this morning your Holy Spirit would guide us and give us wisdom as we study your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, we started this journey of 1 Corinthians 13, and we started off by looking at the preamble of this beautiful chapter. Some have referred to it as the chapter of love or the psalm of love. And as we began that preamble, we looked at where Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 31, to covet earnestly the best gifts, the gifts that he just outlined in chapter 12. But then he said, I will show unto you a more excellent way or a way that is beyond comparison. That more excellent way we found out in our study uh, is the chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 where he breaks down a basic understanding of what agape love is and what it will be like among, among God's people, what it would look like in its manifestation. In our study together last week, in our last study together, we began 1 Corinthians 13 by looking at the first three verses of that chapter. There we found where Paul made five contrasting statements as he contrasted between some of the gifts and various other things, using these these contrasts to show the incredible importance of agape among God's people. We found out in that study together that tongues without love is nothing, prophecy without love is nothing, faith, he says, in fact, all faith without love is nothing, acts of charity without love is nothing. And then the ultimate expression of martyrdom, according to Paul, he says it is nothing without the expression coming from a deep root of agape or love for that individual. Now, as we started this study together, we found a very interesting statement in the spirit of prophecy that really gives a, a greater sense of the importance of agape among God's people. And we found this statement in the Southern Review, January 1 of 1901. Now, there's some interesting things going on in the Adventist church around 1901. There was a lot of dissension. There was a lot of division. There was a lot of uh, bickering back and forth amongst two groups, kind of similar to some of the things that happened with the disciples in the time of Christ. So this is a very telling statement uh, that she makes here. She says, he only who loves his fellow man to a purpose can know God. Only those who love their fellow men will ultimately know God. This is the reason why, or this is the reason that there is so little genuine vitality in our churches. From the statement, it appears like there can be non-genuine vitality, something that comes from another source other than the true source of life. But she says the reason why there is genuine vitality amongst God's people uh, in, in today's day is because there is a lack of agape love. There is a lack of love one towards another. Then she goes on and she says, theology is valueless unless it is saturated with, or saturated uh, with the love of Christ. So in order for our theology, in order for our understanding, in order for our doctrines, the teachings of the Bible to have value to them, to be valuable to other people, to be valuable to us, they first have to be saturated with Love. Now, oftentimes we think, well, if we give them the truth, then we can love them later. But according to this statement, we need to love them first and then give them the truth later. Amen? Now, we don't skip the truth. This isn't just a gospel of love where we just love, 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 and that's all we do. 
No, this is a gospel where we love people by showing them it, it in our practical expression, but that love is ultimately driving us to lead them to the point where we can share with them the truths of God's word. And as we've seen many other times, that when we win people with love, the doctrine, the theory, the teachings of scripture come very naturally. They are accepted when, once they know that they are loved by the people. Now she goes on and she says this, God is supreme. His love in the human heart will lead to the doing of works that will bear fruit after the similitude of the character of God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this here in just a moment, about the character of God and what that is going to look like as it is expressed in those who have 1 Corinthians 13. Manuscript Releases, Volume 9, page 128, it says this, a loving, lovable Christian is the most powerful argument in favor of the what? I'm going to be reading this over and over again because I want this to sink in your head. When I read this statement, the more I read it, the more it just becomes alive to me with meaning that if we are loving, if we are lovable, that it will give a powerful defense in favor of the truth. We don't need to have these apologetic necessarily symposiums where we come up with fancy arguments or answers to arguments to the truth of God. We simply need to show the world that we are loving and lovable. Would you say amen to that? It will be the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. That's a promise that I think we should do well to claim on a regular basis. Agape is a desire to do what is best for somebody else. Agape is not dependent upon the other person's response in order for it to exist. It loves not because of what it gets or how the other person responds, but because it cares for and wants the best for others. I don't want you to miss this point that agape does not respond just because somebody does something good to you. Agape exists whether you are treated good or whether you are treated bad, we still have agape one towards another. And this is why I say it's not something that is of human devising. It's not something that can come from within. Sure, it's easy to love somebody who loves you. There's no test in that. There is no change in character. Listen, all of the people of the world have that characteristic. All of the people in the world, wherever you go, if you love them, they will most likely love you back. But what is the real test, the real expression of whether or not Christ has come into your heart is if you can love those who do not love you. Now, um, as we've looked at our study of 1 Corinthians 13, we found that there are, it, the brief overview of this chapter is divided into three sections. The supremacy of love is what we looked at in our study together last week, where we looked at uh, these five contrasting statements where Paul talks about how great love is as he compares it with other things. This morning, we're going to start on the second part where Paul describes the characteristics of agape in verses 4 through 7. And then we'll look at verses 8 through 13 another time, the permanence of agape, that it will last forever and ever. So this morning, let's begin this analyzing of agape by going back to our Bibles, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. The Bible says this, charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. What Paul is doing here in these few verses is he's taking agape and he is sliding it, if you will, underneath a microscope. 
And when you look in, in a microscope, you, you get a closer look at whatever it is that's underneath there. And you begin to see, if you have a powerful enough microscope, you begin to see the fabric of what that thing is made out of. It, it breaks it, it magnifies it, and it gives you more detail of what the thing that you are looking at is made out of. And Paul, in a sense, is taking uh, agape love and he's putting it under the microscope and he is showing you what it is that it is made out of, the fabric of agape. It's kind of like, you know, when you take a light and you shine it through a prism. And when it comes out the other side of that prism, what do you see? You see the beautiful colors of a rainbow, right? So Paul is, again, he's kind of taking agape like light. He's shining it through the prism of God's word, and he is breaking it down into all of its beautiful colors, what it looks like in its expression towards one another. Now, if you look at these few verses here, just look at them in your Bible if you would. If you look at verses 4 through 7, it's almost like Paul is describing somebody here. As you read through it, it's almost like he's, he's got somebody in mind and he's describing that individual as he's right. Charity does this, charity does that, charity does this. It's almost like he's describing somebody there. And I don't think it's too far of a leap to say that really who he is describing is he's describing Jesus to us, amen? He's describing God. He's describing the character of God. In fact, it's interesting. If you go back to Exodus chapter 33, where Moses asks God to show him his glory, he causes all of his, God causes all of his goodness to pass before Moses, and he basically proclaims his character. And if you look at the character of God described in Exodus chapter 33, and you compare it with 1 Corinthians 13, you will find that there's an overlap there. You'll find that there's a similarity between those two things. In fact, Paul actually expands and gives more detail that uh, Exodus 33 does not. So when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, keep in mind that what Paul is describing is he's describing God. The Bible says God is love. Well, what does that look like? Paul says, here it is. I'm gonna show you what it looks like. And he writes it down, breaks it down into the, fi- the fabric of what it's made out of. Now, here's where things get interesting. I want you to look at this verse again. Just, just look at it in your Bibles. You have your Bibles open. And I wanna ask you a question as you look at that passage of scripture, verses four through seven. And the question is this, can you put your name in place of the word charity? Jason suffereth long and is kind. Jason envieth not. Jason vaunteth not himself, is not puffed up, doth not behave himself unseemly, and so on. Can you put your name in there? We can put the name of Jesus in there. Jesus suffereth long and is kind. But can I put my name in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7? Now, I don't know about you, but when I did that, that made me a little uncomfortable. It make you a little uncomfortable? That makes me a little uncomfortable because when I look at what, what, how, how Paul describes the character of God, I, I realize that by me putting my name in there, I have a lot of areas where I need to grow in my life. I have some areas where I need Jesus to do a little tweaking in my, in my character and in my life, do a little changing on how I express myself to others. There's a little room for growth in there. But Jesus tells us in John chapter 13, verse 34, he tells his disciples in the upper room as they're breaking bread together, as they're spending those final few moments, he says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you agape one another as I have what? Agape you. What does the agape of God look like that he gives to me? 1 Corinthians 13, verses four through seven. 
What does Jesus command the disciples? He says, this is how I want you to agape one another. And then he repeats himself. He doesn't just leave it there, but in chapter 15, verse 12, he repeats the same thing again. This is my commandment, that you agape one another as I have agaped you. Do you think the disciples needed this message? Do you think we need this message? There's no question about it. This is a message that we need. This is something that is imperative. Jesus says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have agape towards one another. Now, here's the really interesting thing. According to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3, or sorry, chapter 3 and verse 2, it says this, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be, we shall be what? We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When Jesus comes, who are we going to be like? We're going to be like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13 is not just describing the character of Jesus, but 1 Corinthians 13 is describing the character of the redeemed. 1 Corinthians 13 is describing the character of those who are going to be translated. 1 Corinthians 13 is describing what the 144,000 will look like before Jesus comes to take us home in the clouds of heaven. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is describing. And it's not something that I can do myself. It's not just a mere intellectual assent to truth. It's not just a, uh, you know, uh, going to a church service and saying, I've got this knowledge now. No, 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 no. This is something that God has to create within us. In a sense, it's almost like we have to lay ourselves down on the heavenly operating table and allow God to do some heart surgery. Maybe there's some of you here this morning that have had heart surgery. Maybe you know somebody who's had heart surgery. It's not a, it's not a fun thing to go through. I've met many people who've gone through heart surgery. It's very invasive. It's very difficult to go through. The healing process is quite extensive. There's a lot of pain and suffering involved, but it saves their lives. And the Bible tells us, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit also will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. God wants to do heart surgery. In fact, he wants to do a heart transplant. He wants to take out the stony one and give you a heart that beats agape, 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 agape. That's what God wants to do for you. And this morning, I don't know about you, but I want to go under the surgical precision of that scalpel that's in the hand of my Savior and say, Lord, you got to do it because there's nothing in me that can do it myself. Help me, Lord. I can't do it on my own. So what does agape look like? Let's go ahead and break these things down to their basic components. First, Paul says that charity or agape suffers long and is what? Suffers long he says, and is kind. The Greek defines suffering long as being patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been injured by somebody? Have you ever been offended by somebody? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that we're patient with them when that happens that we are long-suffering with them when that happens, that we are kind to them when that happens. Listen, this isn't something that you have inside of you. The natural human response is that when that happens, we lash out at them. But Jesus says, 
that the character of Jesus is when that happens to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To show kindness in the face of mistreatment, to show kindness when others injure us. Agape is patient with the faults and failings of others. It is willing to forgive 70 times seven if necessary. When everyone else gives up, agape continues to be what? Patient. Now, you remember when Jesus said to forgive 70 times seven, right? The disciples asked, how many times shall I forgive? Jesus says, unto 70 times seven. The point wasn't that we forgive 490 times and then we say, I don't have to forgive anymore. The point was that Jesus says, as many times as they ask for forgiveness is as many times as you forgive. And agape is the same way. No matter how many times somebody may injure you or do wrong to you or say bad things about you or say bad things to other people about you or whatever it is, the Bible says that agape continues to be patient and agape continues to be kind. Kind and patient to those who may mistreat you. Now, what is the opposite of long-suffering What is the opposite of patience? It is what? It's what? It's impatience. Now, do you think we live in a world today where there are a lot of impatient people? (laughs) There's a lot of impatient people, right? I mean, in fact, when you think about it, impatience today has almost become expected, excused, and in some circles, impatience is even praised, is it not? In some business circles, it's almost lauded if you as a business person are impatient with people as a means of intimidation. But I want to tell you something this morning. Never does impatience exist in the heart of a truly converted Christian. One article that I read that described the society that we live in today put it this way. We speed date, we eat fast food, use the self-checkout lines in the grocery store, Try the one weekend diet. I wonder how that went. Pay extra for overnight shipping. Honk when the light turns green. Thrive and dive on quarterly earnings reports. Speak in half sentences. Start things, but don't. Is that not true? Does that not describe our society today? We live in a society that is obsessed with getting things done yesterday. We're very impatient. The moment the light turns green, somebody behind you is beeping the horn because you're just sitting there for whatever reason. I remember one time I was in the grocery store, it was a while back, and I'd gotten all my groceries and I was walking down that that lane where all the checkout counters are, right? And I'm walking down there and I'm looking. What am I looking for? Yeah, you're guilty of it too, aren't you? You're walking down there and you're looking for the shortest one. Oh, that one's a little long. That one's, oh, here's the shortest one. Pull my shopping cart in and I waited. And I waited, and I waited. Isn't it, it's, the, it's what they call Murphy's Law, right? The, the shortest line ends up taking the longest. Have you ever had that happen to you? And you're wondering to you, what in the world's going on? I, this is the shortest line, the long lines, that man that was way back, he's already walking out of the store, and I'm still standing. What's, and I looked up, and the lady in front of me was writing a check. And I thought to myself, who in the world writes checks today? You didn't have to do that to me. You did not have to do that to me. <clears throat> and as I stood there in Myers, it was actually when I was doing this study on 1 Corinthians 13, 
the Lord had to say, Jason, love is patient. <laughs> so if I'm behind you next time at Myers, and you are writing out your check, we will have a wonderful chat about 1 Corinthians 13, will we not? Shows the genera- generational differences, doesn't it? A study in 2003 in the Journal of American Medical Association pointed out that impatience may lead to a risk of hypertension among young people. You think us older people are, ben- are immune to that? No, I don't think so. When you get impatient, you, you know, blood pressure goes up, leads to hypertension. Another study in 2004 from the Journal of Biosocial Science linked the rise of American impatience with the increase in obesity. This is a very interesting little research that was done. It said this, studies found that as Americans spend more of their income and save less, they also gain weight. If you are willing to forego present satisfactions for future benefits, you are what? Patient. If, however, you want your satisfaction right now, then you are going to have that extra dessert and that extra ice cream, and you are not going to be able to forego the pleasure of today. Can you see how it's all linked together? It's all linked together. In 2007, there was another study that was done, Science Daily. They reported that impatient people may not be as savvy as patient people when it comes to their finances. It's all linked together. Did God know what he was doing when he said, hey, let me create patience in your heart? Did he know what he was doing? Sure he did. Now, this next one really kind of got my attention. This is from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. So this isn't just some little group. This is, you know, some big stuff. This is what they said. Center for Disease Control and Prevention puts impatience at the top of the list of symptoms in diagnosing someone with traumatic brain injuries. Think about that next time you get impatient. (laughs) Traumatic brain injury. You know, when, when people have a traumatic brain injury, they will often, not every time, but they will oftentimes lose the ability to have patience. They get very impatient very quickly. And as I thought about this, there are definite spiritual implications to this. Many years ago, 6,000 years ago, in fact, there was an event that happened where humankind had a traumatic brain injury that altered our way of thinking. It happened in the Garden of Eden, and that traumatic brain injury was the entrance of sin into this world. And sin has caused us to lose our ability to have patience with other people. Now, some of you this morning might be sitting there saying, I'm glad he's not talking about me. Maybe you're sitting there this morning saying, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so. Check. Yep, that's that's for them. Oh, yep, 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 my family member. That that would be a good file that away so I can tell them that sometime. But I want to tell you something this morning. If that's the mindset, it's probably, this information is probably for you. And we would do well whenever we hear something to apply it to ourselves first before we apply it to anybody else. Amen? To ask the Lord, Lord, is this me? 
Because, you know, we are the greatest at lying to ourselves. We don't like reality sometimes. But the Bible gives us a reality check. And 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, is God's attempt of giving us an accurate reflection of what we really look like as his children. And by God's grace, we will allow him to create this new creature within us. Now, Paul He continues and he says that love is not only patient, but it is also what? It is also what? Kind. Listen to this question to think about. Have you ever noticed how much of Christ's life was spent being kind to other people? Have you ever noticed that? Next time you go through the Gospels, just track that. Just track that in the back of your mind. Just time after time after time after time, Christ manifests this this, this character of kindness to people. It doesn't matter how they treated him. He was still kind to them. He healed 10 leopards, even, even though only one came back. He was kind to people. That was just his modus operandi. That was the way he operated. That was who he was. He could do no less than to be kind to other people. Now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't stern with them at times, but he was still kind with them. We're told that when he rebuked, he did it with tears in his eyes. Now, I don't believe most of what Mark Twain has ever written, but this is a good statement on kindness. He said this, kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. Amen? Kindness is the language that the deaf can hear and the blind can can see. Again, it goes along with the concept that it's not what we say, but it's what we do. The greatest thing a man can do for his heavenly father is to be kind to his children. Why is it that we are not all kinder than we are? How much the world needs it. Isn't the world looking for kind people? We of all, as Seventh-day Adventists, should be the kindest people in the world. Would you, would you agree with that? We should be the kindest people. We should go above and beyond. We shouldn't evil surmise. We should always give people the benefit of the doubt, and we should be praying and looking for opportunities to show people kindness in whatever way the Lord may bring it across our paths. Uh, George Fox, he was an English reformer. He made this fascinating statement. It's just so beautiful. He says this, I know Jesus, and he was very precious to my soul. Is Jesus precious to you this morning? Amen. He was very precious to my soul. And, uh, but I found something in me that would not keep silent and patient and kind, or sorry, that would not keep sweet and patient and kind. I did what I could to keep it down, but it was there. Can you identify with that? You find things in your life and you just, you're, you're trying to push it down. And, and when you're talking to somebody, your blood pressure's going up, but you're trying to keep that smile on your face and, and try to act positive. But it's just, it's still there and it's coming up. And the more you're there, the more intense it gets and your face is starting to turn red. This is what uh, George Fox is talking about here. It was there. He's trying to push it down. He said, I did what I could to keep it down, but it was still there. And then he says this, I besought Jesus to do something for me. And when I gave him my will, he came into my heart and he took out all that would not be sweet and all that would not be kind and all that would not be patient. And then what did he do? Shut the door. 
I want that experience. How about you? This is the heart surgery that we need where Christ comes in and he is the one that takes out all the bitterness. He's the one that takes out all the, 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 the unsweetness and the unkindness. He's the one that takes it out. And then he shuts the door behind us and all that is left is the sweetness of the character of Jesus. Love, charity, God's people are patient and kind. Paul goes on and he says, charity, agape, God's people, Jesus, envieth not. The Revised Standard Version says that it is not jealous. The word envy in the Greek means to boil. <laughs> you ever seen something boil in a pot, right? You know, it doesn't, it's kind of, kind of vicious. It means to boil. The boiling produces anger and bitterness. It is the result of competition with others who may appear to have more talents or are doing something greater than you may feel you are doing. You might not think of yourself as being a jealous person. But listen to this definition here of jealousy and see if maybe there might be something that, that might, you might be able to identify with. Envy or jealousy is pain at the sight of superior excellence or accomplishments in others and is characterized, this is what it looks like, by feelings of what? Have you ever felt inferior? So it's characterized, it's expressed, if you will, in feelings of inferiority. It produces bitterness born out of what? There's the root. All sin has its root that comes back into selfishness. And envy is not any different. Envy has its root in selfishness. It has its expressions in feelings of inferiority. And when you look at the fall of Lucifer, perhaps this is the greatest expression of the price that is paid by somebody who continues to harbor envy in their hearts. Usually it doesn't manifest itself in any way that people see it because as Christians, we've become very good actors on the stage of Christianity. But it's something that rolls around inside of our heads oftentimes where we think that others are better than us we have these feelings of inferiority, and they are born, I believe, out of selfishness, which is what Lucifer's envy came out of. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 4 says this, uh, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy or bitterness or envy? So Solomon says, listen, cruel is, or, uh, wrath is one thing and anger is another, but jealousy is in a completely different league of itself. It creates in the mind of a man something that is not natural to the human existence. The only antidote to envy and jealousy is agape. That's the only antidote. It's the only thing that will take it away. You can't buy it in a bottle. You can go to therapy, and the therapist will do all kinds of things with you. He'll try to, you know, get your mind off of it or whatever it may be that therapists do. And I'm not knocking therapists because I think they have a job. But I think oftentimes the thing that we ask a therapist to do is something that a therapist can't do that only God can do for us. Now again, I, it, has a, it has its place. But I believe that sometimes we need to come to the Lord and ask the Lord to have a therapy session with us and let him do the work of recreation in our lives. The Bible goes on, and this is the one I want to conclude on this morning. It says that charity, not only does it envy not, but it vaunteth not itself, and it is not puffed up. The New International Version says that it does not boast and it is not 
proud. It's not what? Proud. Every human being at some point in their life will struggle with pride. In fact, we'll probably struggle with it until the day that we are buried in the grave. But God wants to give us something better if we allow him to. Now, here's an interesting thing. Paul, as I've mentioned already, he's describing here for us the character of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, but he's also describing the character of those that will be translated. But he also gives us a character description in in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 of the wicked when Jesus returns. So he gives you two character sketches. This is what the righteous will look like. This is what the wicked will look like. And I'm not going to go through all of this, but just look at a few of these things that Paul describes the wicked as being, lovers of their own selves, boasters, proud, heady, high-minded. What's the one word that comes to your mind when you look at those five things? Proud. Pride, right? That's the mindset of the wicked. The wicked think of themselves better than they ought. And as you go back in the recesses of your mind, you will find that, again, this is also what led to Lucifer's ultimate downfall, is that he thought of himself better than he ought to. He was, the the Bible says that he beheld his beauty and he was lifted up because of it. Maybe it's not your beauty that makes you proud, but maybe it's something else that makes you proud. It doesn't matter. If there's pride there, it's all the same. What causes it is, is irrelevant. The fact is that it's there. And we need to ask God to do a heart transplant for us, to take away that pride, to take away that arrogance of thinking better than of ourselves than we ought to, and to replace it with the humble, meek attitude of Jesus. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, blessed are the, for they shall what? Inherit the earth, the Bible says. Those that inherit the kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew, are those who are meek, who are humble like Jesus. Listen to this statement from Christ Object Lessons, page 154. It says this, there is nothing so offensive to God or so dangerous to the human soul as pride and self-sufficiency. Let me read that again. There is nothing so offensive to God or so dangerous to the human soul as pride and self-sufficiency. Of all sins, it is the most hopeless, the most incurable. What is offensive in the eyes of God? Pride and self-sufficiency. And listen, we're not immune to this as Seventh-day Adventists. You know, sometimes the fact that we think we have so much truth that makes us proud. But are we loving people? Sometimes we think because we have so much knowledge that we can become self-sufficient in our religious experience where we are the ones that are doing dot, dot, dot. There is nothing so offensive to God as pride and self-sufficiency. Of all sins, it is the most hopeless. It is, I'm sorry, you, I, had, I thought I had the quote up there. It's the most hopeless and most incurable. We need to pray and say, Lord, please search my heart and show me if I have any pride and self-sufficiency. Take it out of my heart. Take it out of my life. Let me not think of myself better than others, but Lord, let me have the meek mindset of Jesus. Help me, Lord, for I cannot help myself. The human tendency is to think of ourselves better than we ought. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. There we go. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13, the Bible says this, 
The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way and the forward mouth do I hate. What is the fear of the Lord? To hate what? Evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way and the forward mouth. You know, the Bible says that the everlasting gospel, the first part of it, is to fear God and give glory to him. You know, we really need to delve into that fearing God part a little bit more, I think. Because according to Scripture, the fear of the Lord is to hate pride, arrogancy, the evil things, and all the stuff that Solomon mentions here in Proverbs 8 and verse 13. Uh, in closing, I want to share with you two statements here on the screen. This is from Christ Object Lessons, page 69. The Bible says, that, or Spirit of Prophecy says this, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of, him, of, of himself in his church. What is he waiting for among, uh, in his church? A manifestation of himself. He's waiting. He's looking. He's hoping. He's praying. He's looking on this earth. He's waiting for manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to what? Claim them as his own. He's not waiting for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled, although that's going to happen. But what, the, what we are told he's waiting for is a manifestation of himself among his what? Among his people. He's waiting for 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7 to become a reality. Now, I know maybe this morning you are drowning in despair thinking there's no way that this can be my experience. But I don't know about you. I believe I serve a God where all things are possible. And that the impossible is just an opportunity for God to manifest how incredibly powerful he really is. Amen? I believe that this can be the experience of every son and daughter of God, and it's what Jesus is waiting for. Notice what it says in Desire of Ages, page 641. It says, love to man is the earthward manifestation of the love of God. It was implanted, or sorry, it was to implant this love uh, to make us children of one family that the king of glory became one with us. When the love of the world, sorry, when we love the world as he loved it, then for us, his mission is accomplished. When is his mission accomplished? When we love the world as what? As he loved it. Is that not what he told the disciples before he went to the cross? His mission is accomplished. And then she goes on and she says this, we are fitted for heaven. For we have heaven where? When you read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, I want to tell you this morning, that's what heaven is going to look like. When we get to the kingdom of heaven, those who walk on streets of gold, this is the experience that they're going to have. Those that are translated to the kingdom of heaven, this is the experience that they're going to have. When we get to heaven, we are going to be kind. We are going to be loving. We are going to be patient. We are going to be all that 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7 tell us love is going to be. Heaven will be in our hearts when Jesus is able to create in us a love that was just like his. When that takes place, I believe Jesus and the Father talk with one another, and they will say, as they did with Enoch, heaven is in his heart. We need to take this guy to heaven. They will say, as they did with Elijah, heaven is in his heart. We need to bring him to heaven. They will say as they did with Moses, heaven is in his heart. We need to bring him to heaven. He will say of his people, heaven is in their heart. 
They have my character. They have my love towards one another. They no longer deserve to be pilgrims here on this earth, but now they need to be in the atmosphere of heaven. Now that heaven is created in their hearts, now they can be in heaven for eternity. Listen, the stakes are too high for God to risk taking anybody to heaven who does not have this experience. Stakes are too high. God won't do it because he doesn't want sin to rise up again another time. So my challenge to you this morning is this. Don't ask yourself the question, but ask God, where do I need a character tweak in my life? Doubtless, there are elements of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 that you already have in your life. God has given that to you, and that's why we experience elements of this in our church. But I believe that when we all experience it the way God wants us to, there will be a unity There will be a harmony. There will be a oneness among God's people that God will be able to use in a miraculous way as he did in Acts chapter 1 and 2. This is the impetus of Acts 1 and 2. So I want to encourage you this morning, and I want to challenge you to have it out with the Lord in your prayer closet and say, Father, where is it that I need heart surgery? And I want to ask you to take it out, as George Fox said. Take out all that is unkind. Take out all that is not sweet. Take out all that is not loving. Take it out, dear God, and slam the door shut so that all that is left in my heart is the sweet presence of Jesus. He can do it. But with God, all things are possible. Is that your desire this morning? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the wonderful reality that we can have that you can create this experience in our hearts, that it doesn't just have to be theoretical on black and white paper in our Bibles, but that it can be experienced in our lives. This morning, Father, we plead with you to show us where we need to surrender our will to you so that you can take out anything that is of the world. Please, Lord, let only the sweet presence of Jesus the sweet character of Christ be found within our hearts and may that be what drives us forward as your people. This week, Lord, may it be a practical experience for each one of us, we ask. But we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.